I'm Richard Dodd, and you're listening to the Ecology Academy podcast. This is a show where we get to talk and learn about all things ecological, including interviews with top ecologists, both employers and employees, those working with ecologists, and also aspiring and inspiring career-seeking individuals setting out to make a difference. The show aims to provide you with insights, advice, and inspiration to help you succeed and excel as an effective ecologist and to make a real difference to our natural environment. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Ecology Academy podcast. Now, on today's episode, I have none other than Dr. Nick White, who's the Principal Advisor for NetGain at Natural England. Now, Nick works across government, both at the national and local level, and he works with developers, NGOs, and academia, and many to advance policy, practice, and standards around net gain, which includes biodiversity net gain, natural capital, and environmental net gain. Now, the current focus of Nick's work is on biodiversity net gain legislation, the biodiversity metric and biodiversity net gain standards and guidance, as well as working on the evolving approach to marine net gain. Now, as a non-ecologist, Nick is interested in how biodiversity and the natural environment can contribute towards wider social and economic benefits and has a strong interest in green infrastructure, especially in relation to urban areas and its ability to enhance wider or grey infrastructure resilience. Nick enjoys engaging with different sectors and seeking opportunities to help secure the delivery of shared outcomes and has previously worked in the health, cultural and charitable sectors. And on today's episode, we are going to go deep and look at biodiversity net gain legislation, but the biodiversity metric itself biodiversity standards and guidance and we may if we've got time to talk about marine net gain so without further ado let's get into the episode so welcome nick to the ecology academy podcast pleasure to be here thanks for inviting me Richard. not a problem at all it's uh, I'm, I'm really interested to uh, hear about um, not only your, your, well, your work within natural england but also I suppose sort of actionable items are from biodiversity net gain and the metric tool itself um so um, if you don't mind, we'll kick off straight away. Yeah, sure. Okay, so um, you kindly sent across to me a few ideas for discussion. And one of those areas I'd like to pick up on straight away is about, I suppose, the skill set of an ecologist. Now, we're very used to undertaking ecological appraisals for land, well, for developers and the, for the planning process there. So um, with the use of biodiversity again in the metric tool, how... What different sort of skill sets do you think ecologists need to be aware of and sort of train themselves on um, going forward? Um, so there's, I think there are particular um, areas that ecologists need to be kind of aware of and we're thinking about in terms of kind of their future training and development. So, so biodiversity net gain is obviously a habitats-based approach as well. So um, kind of some ecologists are particularly kind of specialised in a kind of a species um, uh, work, often because that's you know, historically been where a lot of the work has been around, around you know, protected species um, and the licensing requirements around that. So, so, uh, so this requires uh, the ability to kind of identify habitats, also have familiar with the UK HAB uh, classification system as well so that's relatively new within the, the kind of uh, the kind of field of ecology is a uh, kind of different to, to phase one there is a translation available between the two but but gaining familiarity with with the UK hab um, system which is um, it's it's not the sole system within that game but it's quite a, a significant po- component of it um, similarly with the use of the, the kind of metric it requires it ha- it comes with its own kind of condition assessment uh, methodologies as well and where some of those uh, are drawn from uh, kind of uh, 
existing practice. So, for example, some of the woodland uh, assessments, people you know, have been used to, uh, and yeah, sort of using the uh, uh, the, the kind of woodland uh, assessments from the England uh, Woodland Group. They'll be quite familiar with that. Uh, others, are, again, are quite quite new as well. So, so I think it's uh, there's the training in um, actually kind of doing the the kind of ground truth thing to identify your kind of baseline values. So that's uh, yeah, familiar with the condition assessments. There's the metric itself as well, and getting familiar with that. So I think sometimes uh, people think that the metric is there to replace ecologists. It's absolutely not. It's a, it's a tool uh, to be used uh, yeah, in conjunction with ecological judgment. Um, but having training in terms of your ability to understand what the metric does and doesn't do, you know, it does have its limitations. Um, and there are training courses available through professional bodies uh, on that as well. So I think that's another area. And then one of the final areas is around net gains are really, yeah, it's aiming for really long-term kind of ongoing management and maintenance as well. So we're often quite used to thinking in relatively short timeframes in terms of thinking about management plans um, and the, the kind of onward management of, of, of outcomes. Whereas with net gain, you have to do it for at least 30 years. So again, kind of thinking in that that longer term, yeah, actually what is, yeah, what yeah, what might this site be like in, in 30 years time? Yeah, I'll be well retired by then personally. Yeah. Kind of, um, so it's it's that kind of slightly different approach to mm. to, to how we think about um, the kind of factors to consider um, on sites as well. Okay, so I mean, in, in one aspect, it, I mean, it covers virtually everything, right? In terms of our sort of ability to, yeah, assess a site. So I, I know from experience myself then that um, you know prior to like undertaking a preliminary ecological appraisal, yes, we're looking at habitats, with species, write up the report. But there's this additional element that I can see now that um, we're going to have to spend a lot more time prior, well, even before we're actually going into the field, shall we say, looking at a particular site, looking at, um, I suppose, the habitat prior to visiting. So uh, what I mean by that is that um, a site could be slightly manipulated on site when we arrive, you know, for you know, for whatever reason. Um, And I I think we need to be looking a little bit more, you know, uh, at the site, what's happened in the past, like, 10, 20 years. Is that that something that the metric looks at? Yeah, so um, one of the things that is in the Environment Act, which I think is really quite helpful, is that we're all familiar with instances where people have either deliberately or or unintentionally kind of degraded a site, you know, before uh, kind of um, they're looking to, to then sort of, do assessments uh, in terms of its ecological value. Helpfully, the Environment Act actually sets a date that says, that, mm. yeah, if it, if you can't agree uh, what the the kind of baseline date or period for a site should be, it it will it, the date is the 30th of January 2020, and it's the day that that the kind of the bill was uh, reintroduced into Parliament. So it's then um, thinking, okay, so what was the the, the kind of development? Uh, what was the, the kind of the, the value of the site um, before any of the development works had commenced? So you don't have to go back, yeah, yeah, yeah massively, yeah. yeah, far in time. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it, it's a snapshot in terms of baseline. Um, you don't have to kind of identify, yeah, you know, a, a kind of trend in terms of was this site uh, kind of improving or, or declining. Um, but as you said, you often won't necessarily have access to the site. So it's then being able to make best use of other kind of sources of information, uh, aerial photography, uh, kind of uh, national data sets, um, um, but also being quite precautionary about how you approach things. Because one of the, I think one of the things that I'm finding really positive as an outcome from biodiversity net gain already, and this is bearing in mind that the mandatory approach isn't yet law, is the fact that all too often in the past, um, 
schemes will be quite you know, far advanced in terms of their the kind of level of design, etc. Um, until the ecologist gets to see them, and then yeah, suddenly you're like, oh, try and make this green, and you've got such a limited opportunity then yeah. to do anything with it. Whereas, I think what that gain is starting to drive people to do, and I would encourage you know, listeners on this as well, is to say, the earlier you can be thinking about this, and the more holistically people can be engaging on that gain, the easier you'll find it to deliver. So, yeah at site selection stage you know what's going to be the site if you've got choices around this it's got the the lowest baseline so you're not impacting on sites that have already got some good quality nature and also how can you engage best with landscape architects civil engineers other professionals in terms of nature being a kind of solution to the design of that site as well rather than it coming in at the at the very end so so yeah encouraging people to think about uh, net gain and, and using the metric at site selection you know outline design stages mm-hmm. um and and then when you've got access to the site then you can kind of do some more kind of detailed ground truthing but if you've been precautionary from the outset hopefully at that point when you do get to the site there aren't any surprises that you know, suddenly you, know, you weren't expecting there as well I can see that you know you mentioned there about some um, additional sort of um, professionals so you know, you know maybe architects landscape architects obviously the client themselves yeah so um, in terms of um, yes engagement at the earliest opportunity I think that's one of the key requisites isn't it you know trying to yeah. get involved um, I, mean, I mean surely it's, it must be advantageous to the developer or the landowner to seek out those services at an early stage because it i'm sure from an economic point of view it may help them further down that that line you'd think so and and in many cases it is but you'd still be surprised by the number of uh developers who suddenly discover that their scheme which they were all set to kind of launch on you know kind of commence Oh, they've only now discovered that there's great Christian Newts, for yeah. example, on the on the scheme, and then the whole thing's got held up. Um, whereas if they'd kind of done some just early engagement around that and you know, done some early surveys, that that would have been identified much earlier on. So, so I do think there has been a legacy of not quite, but almost treating the environment as an afterthought in the development yeah. process. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, got to focus on yeah the um, um, making sure some of the kind of heavy engineering can all work. Oh, and then how can the actual kind of where does green come into all of this? Um, and if net gain achieves nothing else other than to to get the environment being factored into people's thinking much earlier on, that's a great outcome as far as I'm concerned because a it should hopefully deliver uh, kind of better quality better quality schemes, but also it kind of just raises the profile as well um, within uh, organisations that actually environmental matters, um, nature is something that needs to be considered and, and factored in for, for good reasons. Yeah, and I can see that, um, you know, we, I think I mentioned before about, um, you know, we, we are very, we're very good at talking to other ecologists, for instance, about, uh, yeah. you know, ecological issues, but um, there seems to be also now maybe even a greater requirement, I mean, the requirement was there before, but a greater requirement maybe to, as I say, you know, discuss these plans with with a wider set of professionals, you know, but, you know, occasionally we may, of course, approach architects and talk with landscape architects about um, a particular project, but it's very more standoffish. And unless you're actually working within a practice that has those in-house skills, yep. the the likelihood of us actually interacting with um, those different professionals is it can be quite limited. But I imagine that once we get involved with you know, what good looks like for biodiversity net gain, these are some of the... I suppose we're going to have to liaise a lot more and talk to communicate with these people. Um, well, not daily, but um, you know, on a more frequent basis. 
No, I, I agree. And I think one area that the, potentially the metric can help in all of this as well. So the kind of the metric kind of takes uh, information that you're telling it in terms of uh, different types of habitats and is translating everything into a language of units, biodiversity units. And um, these are sectors that love to measure things. So it's a world of numbers mm. um, and you'd be it around carbon or be it around kind of water usage or, or, or kind of whatever. Um, and so I'm not an ecologist, for example, but idea it's helpful to be able to have information presented to you in a format that if you're not yeah, from that particular set, be it ecology or whatever you know, the, the sex happens to be, if you can understand what someone's trying to communicate with you. And I think it can help with that. So it's a communication tool. It's got numbers, percentages, et cetera. People get that and they can start then thinking, well, okay, okay, so if you're telling me that if I consider this earlier, then those numbers come down in a kind of a positive way, I can see how that can then translate into potential kind of cost savings and kind of de-risking aspects of the, of the project. Um, so yes, I think it, it it can also help with that dialogue. Um, um, but also just generally, I think, yeah, being able to understand the kind of the, the challenges and the, the constraints that other professionals are, are kind of working under as well and and how you know ecology and the environment can also come in as a, a kind of a help as a solution so if a if a scheme is also trying to deal with issues of surface water flooding or if there's um you know kind of local requirements uh, and expectations around uh, opportunities to deliver kind of um uh, a kind of screening or things like that it's it's again thinking yeah, this doesn't have to be engineered as a solution there is there are soft you know soft engineering solutions available which can also count towards net gain yeah yeah okay and uh, you mentioned previously about um it's it, the metric is a tool but it's not a decision making tool in, in its own right um so i mean we're not taking away anything from the ecologists you know we we still need to think <laughs> Don't we? I mean, back to, back to, <laughs> probably even more so about um, what the implications. I mean, as you say, it, it's um, rightly so. It, it, you know, we good data in. Hopefully, it means good data out, and that's the interpret. The, I say the analysis part. We 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 need to get you know better at in interpreting these figures. What it actually means to the client. What it actually means to the environment itself. Um, so, in terms of, I suppose, looking at the, some of the limitations of this tool itself. Yeah. How do we? I mean, what, first of all, are there any, if so, what are they? And maybe also looking at ways to overcome, you know, override or, or, or manipulate, so we say, some of these um, um, shortfalls and short uh, yeah. pitfalls. So, um, so the tool, it's important to understand uh, colleagues in uh, colleagues who have worked with in Natural England uh, who are working on this will you know, keep repeating that it, it's not a complex ecological model and it's not, it's it deliberately not. Um, otherwise, you just create a massive black box potentially that uh, no one fully understands. Um, so, so it doesn't include uh, species specific data. It is using habitats as a kind of proxy for, for, for biodiversity. It doesn't consider indirect impacts either. Um, so, you know, it doesn't replace the need to do uh, EIAs if they're needed and, and, and things like that. Um, it also, at the moment, um, and for the, um, the, the kind of, at least the kind of short term, it's on an Excel kind of form as well. It's it's essentially it's a very nice spreadsheet, and it's a, but it's it's still a, a spreadsheet. Um, ideally, you know, we would like to move it uh, longer term into a, a kind of digital space as well, where there's yeah lots more scope to to do some kind of quite interesting uh, things around it. So, so it's it's be aware that it. it it can't do everything and it's never trying to do everything as well. So um, net gain doesn't 
replace any existing kind of environmental kind of policies or, or kind of requirements. So, um, yeah, you still need to do your protected species surveys. You still need to kind of meet your other kind of requirements as well. Um, but that being said, it's very good at doing what it does. Um, so it's good as a tool for saying, actually, what was the you know, the baseline value of the site? And then being able to predict into the future. And it is evidence-based. So when it's you know, when numbers are coming out of it saying, well, yeah, this is the kind of um, the kind of type of quantum that's that's needed in order to achieve a net gain, it's already been factoring in questions around on a habitat by habitat basis, well, how difficult is this particular habitat to, to, to deliver? And obviously some are much easier than, than others or will take a lot longer or, or, or less time than others. You know, what, at how many years will it take to reach the, the kind of time to target condition? Um, so it is, it does have evidence underpinning it as well. Um, although inevitably that's having to take an average. Um, so this is a tool that's gonna to be used uh, yeah, across England by a whole range of different development types as well. Um, so there will undoubtedly be instances where um, you've got a project that says, actually, I think I can do this quicker than necessarily the tool suggests. And the tool has always acknowledged that and said, well, if you think that's the case, um, there is scope to, if the if the consenting body agrees, to deviate slightly from what the, what the tool is saying. But it's it's there to say on, a, on an average basis, this is what, yeah, this is how long you can expect um, things to take. I think the other great advantage of it, and I think the really, to my mind, significant change that NetGain is delivering is for the first time, we've got a, we've got a mechanism that kind of values for want of a better term, the kind of run of the mill kind of wildlife, the kind of the, the, the scrubby habitats, the places that always get ignored, never get valued at all. Um, in any kind of planning context, and they all now have a value. You have to do something positive to those. Um, so, I think that's the really fundamental thing because, in most cases, if you are going to planning, and if there were no protected species um, and there are no protected sites involved, um, unless there was particularly priority habitat, yeah, nothing that was on the site had any value. Whereas now everything, even if you don't touch it, you still got to leave, you know, do something positive to it. So I think that that's a really significant change. And it's, I'm hoping um, it will leave a lasting legacy in terms of actually, you know, the, 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 the kind of greening of developments, but also out, yeah, away from the development sites themselves, if you're offsetting opportunities to enhance the kind of wider countryside and, and, and or, uh, kind of other places as well. Okay, great. Thank you for that. So, in terms of, I mean, you mentioned about um, you know lasting lasting legacies there uh, as well. So, in terms of, well, options available to a developer, Lando. Yep. Okay, so let's go for developers to start off with. So, in terms of, they've assessed their site. You know, they've engaged with an, an ecologist and other professionals at an early stage. They've got their design sorted, the research process of going for, you know, back and forth. They've got the calculation there. Now, um, in terms of what are the advantages, or uh, well, what are the advantages of keeping things on site, uh, on site BNG, compared to looking off site and other alternatives? Um, so there could be advantages in terms of cost. So um, particularly if you've got other things uh, in, in terms of green infrastructure that you're looking to try and kind of integrate into the site as well. So um, so it could be that yeah through yeah a combination of a kind of a SUD scheme for the for the site, um, some other kind of 
green infrastructure type features. It all depends on what the baseline value was. Actually, you, you could have achieved net gain there. And actually in doing so, the costs are comparatively low because you're also at the same time delivering some of the other or addressing some of the other challenges that, that the site has as well. Um, Equally, it could be that um, you think, actually, I'm wanting to, yeah, most developers are quite interested in placemaking and, and, and most kind of local authorities are as well. They're wanting to see uh, schemes coming forward that offer kind of real kind of opportunities and benefits to uh, both existing and kind of incoming residents. Um, and one of the things that our collective experience of COVID highlighted was actually you know, how much we value having you know, the public values in terms of having contact with the natural environment and, and the health and well-being benefits that that can provide. But that's quite inequitable in terms of, you know, some communities they've got they're really well yeah really well uh, served with it others got no you know they're living essentially in a kind of concrete desert mm -hmm. so so i think again there's there's opportunities on site in terms of um your ability to uh deliver what the, the developers objectives potentially also to deliver what the, the kind of local planning authority is looking for as, as well um but there will always be instances where on-site wholly isn't necessarily the answer. Um, it could be that actually just the, the scheme itself, um, does, you know, the design isn't you know, can't accommodate on-site. Um, it could also be that the ecology is best delivered off-site as well, particularly where you've got uh, habitats that are particularly prone to, and, and species are particularly prone to disturbance, for example, as well, and it might be better served um, actually aiming to deliver that off-site. Um, and then, in terms of where the how the policy works, the policy is coming at this from a presumption of try and deliver on site. It doesn't insist you do deliver it on site, but try and deliver on site. And in part, ecologically, that's a recognition that well, if everything just goes off site, over time you're going to create these kind of ecological deserts um, in places. And also, a kind of an unwritten element of the policy is although it's biodiversity net gain, we live on a crowded island and. Yeah, there's a lot of people um, and I think it, there's a, a kind of a recognition that actually if we want people to kind of value the natural environment and value wildlife and and, and be you know, help us in our collective endeavour to try and address the nature emergency, we need people on board as well. And so mm. being seen to be able to uh, provide people with the kind of green and blue spaces that we know they want as well through 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 various studies on a site or close to a site again that's quite that's quite beneficial um uh, but it does obviously provide with that mechanism say actually on site you don't always have to do it and then you can start going going off site as well okay and in terms of i mean i mean it's one of these concepts i mean I, i've got no personal involvement in this at all but uh you know I, i'm familiar with on site off site you know, mitigation yep. compensation and uh, but uh, um, biodiversity credits. So this is another, I say, option, I suppose, that could be available to a, um, uh, a developer, um, but probably less favourable uh, compared to the other two, is it? Yeah, so they're, they're, they're the option of last resort. Um, so we're coming to a position uh, once mandatory net gain commence, where essentially it would be illegal to try and proceed with a development that wasn't delivering net gain. So legally, the developer has to do achieve net gain. Um, we've already talked about the fact that although there's a presumption about delivering on site where possible, that's not always possible, um, either for practical reasons or good ecological reasons. And so yeah, developers will then be looking for um, yeah, suitable off-site providers. It may well be, though, that they're yeah, 
local circumstance means actually there's not someone with the appropriate sites available to that developer. So the developer then would have a problem because legally they have to achieve net gain, but they've got no mechanism for doing so. So, so that's when statutory credits is designed to come in. Um, so the expectation is that they might be in greater demand um, in the early days as the, you know, whilst the market kind of um, ratchets up, if you like, in terms of the, the suitable availability of supply. Um, developers would have to demonstrate that they had, you know, they hadn't, they're not able to do it on site. They they had, a, you know, tried to find someone off site and, and were unable to in order before they could go to credits. They'd also be priced at a point that tried to make them, you know, uncompetitive with the, the kind of wider market. Um, but by when, if you can satisfy those tests, the developer would then be able to purchase credits from from governments, and they'd be invested in kind of strategic landscape scale kind of schemes somewhere else in the country. So there'd be no guarantee they're being invested locally, but they would be sort of invested somewhere. So um, we think they're needed, but we also think um, that it's right to have the emphasis on you know, the market and on site rather than than credits as well. So that they're, they're, they're there is an option if. If, if if required um and uh, but very much as a, as a last resort yeah so in terms of obviously providing then these um units off site and by an alternative provider shall we say so uh, yep. so obviously you're calling for I imagine that um government is calling forward sites to be not well, sorry, allocated but put forward for maybe offsetting by diversity using this scheme itself um now i, I know you know there has been criticism um edge that um okay well a developer can just say oh well i'm gonna trash my site and then just i know i'm gonna be able to get things off site but it clearly is there gonna be an economic impact upon uh, the sort of them um, i suppose the viability of a scheme itself now yeah. in terms of but in terms of i suppose the availability of these sites how well set up are we currently do you think to actually meet a demand when it becomes mandatory in um, you know hopefully next year so there's there's definitely a growing interest and growing awareness that this is an opportunity coming. So government estimates that the size of the market in providing kind of offsite units, depending on what sort of type of assumptions you make about what percentage gets delivered offsite, could be somewhere in the region of between 130 to 180 million pounds a year. So it's not an insubstantial market. Um, we're seeing uh, growing interest from a kind of range of landowners um, in this as an opportunity. So um, from farmers looking to kind of diversify income or to kind of use uh, bits of land that are you know, kind of not particularly viable from a, a kind of uh, kind of agricultural perspective. Uh, uh, production perspective. Um, we're also seeing interest from uh, local authorities where they've got their own land holdings in kind of parks and green spaces where they think there could be an opportunity here to to improve the biodiversity of some of those sites, but obviously doing so in a way that doesn't you know compromise the fact that they're actually you know, amenity spaces as well. So you need to be quite sensitive to, to how you go about it. Um, and uh, developers themselves. So we've got uh, organisations, some with quite significant land holdings, who have got what up until quite recently they've just regarded as stranded assets. So they've got you know, land somewhere that's got no particular development value. Um, they can't, it's on their books, but they can't really find an economic kind of um, a benefit from it who sort of turning towards net gain thing. Well, actually, potentially this is, this is an opportunity to get an income from this land. And we do think the kind of 
the the money that the landowners will get will be quite competitive compared to other potential sources of income. I mean, it will be a, a market. It's a regulated, yeah. You know, it's a it's a, a regulated market in a sense, but it's down to you know whatever the individual landowner can negotiate price wise. But um, looking at you know what people have been uh, charging to date and, and government's analysis, there are some potentially quite attractive returns if you're a landowner that, that you could get through net gain. Um, and a bit that I found really fascinating is that, so I've worked at Natural England for the best part of, I think, about 15 years or something like that. Up until this year, I've never been phoned by financial institutions wanting to find out about, you know, what am I doing work-wise or what Natural England's doing work-wise. There's now um, significant interest from kind of institutional investors and kind of asset managers and and, and some of the, the big kind of financial players in investing in the natural environment because they themselves can see this as a potential opportunity. So it's private money, private sector money going into the environment. And if that's delivering a positive outcome for nature, then I think that's a, that hopefully, yeah, that would actually be a good thing as well. So, uh, so we don't know. I mean, it's day one's potentially only kind of just over about a year away. Um, Yeah. The expectation is this will commence uh, November next year. Um, There are growing numbers of organizations and landowners kind of starting to work on this. There's, and this government money was made available through the natural environment investment readiness funds to try and help kind of pump prime uh, certain projects as well. So, but, I think there will be a need for silver credits on day one, but as the market kind of begins to develop further, the expectation is that credit demands dissipates as the market um, picks up the, the demand. Yeah, and the I suppose that I mean obviously from a landowner's point of view, it is about uh, obviously the cost. Uh, yeah. So, so the, the, what they the, their return of investment should be, because obviously there's a yes, there may be a financial benefit for for biodiversity in that game, but there's also a loss of agricultural use there yeah. as well so we you know, I think obviously they're gonna to have to balance that out and I mean we've just recently attended the um, farm business innovation show up in Birmingham in the NEC and I think a large percentage of the conversations we were having were with, well it was a mixture of conversations but it's certainly a lot about okay landowners um, they you know they're, they're aware of this it's something on their radar um, estate managers are also talking to their you know to their to their clients about um, about these opportunities still early days I think no no one knows fully sure whether they're going to be going for this or not but it's it's yeah. they're interested I think it's it's a, it's a really good um, as you say it can help give that win-win situation for both uh, I say developers and landowners and of course um, in the, the, more importantly for us um, biodiversity or the environment. No, indeed. And and there are other bits of information people are still waiting on as well. So there are still areas of uncertainty. So one of the the questions that, that regular comes up to uh to, to us from landowners is, well, okay, I've got yeah, you know, this net gain for biodiversity, but then we've also got things like you know, nutrient neutrality, uh carbon uh, kind of markets, um, future environmental land management schemes. How how do these all interact together? Um, yeah, can I sell carbon credits at the same time as biodiversity units, for example, and things like that. So there is a need for um, more information and, and greater kind of guidance, particularly on questions that get described as kind of stacking and bundling. So the ability to combine different uh, schemes. Um, and um, we're expecting more information to be coming out from government quite soon on that. So I think that will be quite helpful as well from a, a kind of financial planning perspective for some, for some landowners. There are other issues that um, are yeah, on the minds of, of some landowners, so questions around uh, taxation. So you get 
agricultural property relief. Yeah, what's the situation with with biodiversity in that game? Um, and there's discussions ongoing with with uh, uh, Treasury and HMRC around that as well. But yeah, so I think there's areas where it would be great if there was already greater clarity there's still you know, information to come but but no i agree with you i mean there's there is there's definitely an interest out there as well um and i think you know landowners are looking at this as to it's not it's not going to work for everyone it will depend where they are in a country potentially in terms of how much local development is taking place and also kind of making sure they provide the habitats that the developers need as well because again it's a market and there are there are rules in terms of you can't just uh, kind of trade down as a developer you know you need to be kind of doing equivalents or trading up um, and it very much will depend on what types of habitats are are being found within red lines as to the types of habitats developers then consequently need. So it's making sure they're providing the right type of supply yeah, in, and, and understanding what the local market for that provision might be as well. Okay, so yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, that value then, that, that's going to, I think it's, as it probably be decided that obviously the market decides really where, yeah. where you know, each unit, I mean, obviously there's not going to be a set price for a particular biodiversity, is there? No, there's no there's no set price. Um, there are things that um, do kind of nudge um, delivery into particular areas or particular types of outcome. So, um, so one of the things the metric does is it provides a reward um, in through in a terms of the multiplier. If you're um, a, if you're delivering something in advance, so we're we're keen to encourage landowners to to start, yeah. Uh, changing their uh, kind of uh, investing now as well because partly because you know, we are in a nature crisis so you know we don't want to be waiting another 15 or so years before habitats coming on stream um, but the earlier you create or start investing in habitats then that will mean that you know, at the point you come to sell actually your land can generate more units and if you just started at that moment in time so that's one thing um, the other thing is through um, the ability of local environmental kind of strategies to influence uh, what's what, what and where things get delivered as well. So again, the metric has this strategic significance multiplier component in it, which is basically there to say, if you're delivering an outcome, either in a location or of a habitat type that's been identified locally as being yeah, important, um, your again, your land is can generate slightly more units than yeah, someone else's land that isn't. Um, and over time, it's intended that local nature recovery strategies will be the kind of the, the kind of national way of identifying this around the country mm. obviously they're still in early days so in the interim people are using green infrastructure strategies or existing biodiversity strategies but again it's it's just a way of trying to encourage the delivery of the kind of right habitats in the right place if that makes sense as well yeah yeah no it, no, it does and i think you know as i say there's a you know, uh, say great opportunities there to be to, to be had, and in terms of uh, so, uh, in, in, as an example of that, then it could be that um, say a landowner wants to put part of their land in you know up for you know register it with whoever they're going to register with. I don't know where you'd register, but uh, uh, oh, come on to that. So. Okay, good, good. <laughs> uh, and and so uh, you know, say they're going to be for very simplicity, simple, uh, you know, simple example, planting some trees on on mm-hmm. their land. And now, obviously, that takes if if they've got those trees on their land for about five years, and someone approaches them after five years, that's that's going to be more economically appealing to the landowner than if than if they were planting them on day one. Is that is that, is that, is that potentially yes? Yeah. So they'll find that um, those trees will have a slightly higher unit 
per hectare value than they would if they planted on day one. Obviously, there's other things to consider. Mm. So they may find on day one, because this is a new market, um, and so depending on how many suppliers are in that market, they may find prices are slightly higher in day one than they are in five years. So there's that to, 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 to factor in. But, but no, essentially, that's, um, that's how that works. And, and it can have quite a significant impact on some habitats as well. So, um, so some you can find essentially the, the kind of unit per hectare that can gener- be generated can almost double within kind of you know, a period of time of kind of less than five years as well. And it's, it's basically because the risk factors associated with that habitat have dropped away. The, um, yeah, the, the habitat is in situ, it's, it's, it's improving. Um, it may be quite close depending on what it is to already achieving its time to target condition. So, so those risk elements of the metric don't need to be applied. So it gives, yeah, it, it kind of uh, gives it a higher value. On the register, um, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, So under the mandatory scheme, when that commences, any landowner that's looking to participate in this uh, market will need to register the land on a national register. So that's currently in the process of being built. Uh, It's due to come on stream uh, next summer. Uh, So it'll be a digital platform that anyone, your eye, can access and, and, and kind of interrogate. Um, and a developer can only, uh, or planning authority rather, can only consent to development if the uh, developer, when they're going off site, can actually demonstrate that they've got uh, a landowner uh, and land that's been allocated to that development on the register as well. So get that registration uh, process will be quite important for landowners. And it's there to also provide a means of providing some transparency into the system as well. So A, to make sure that you don't have a a situation where a landowner with a hectare of um, field plants your trees on, for example, um, sells that to one developer, says, thank you very much, then turns to another developer and says, I've got a hectare. I'll sell that to you as well, and I'll sell that to you as well, and it's all on the same hectare. So, and so it's to make sure you don't get that kind of um, those type of activities taking place, um, but then also to allow for you or I to be able to say, see rather that if a development is taking place locally and they they can't fully do it on site. And they're saying, well, I'm achieving net gain. Well, you'll be able to see, well, how are they and where are they achieving net gain as well? So, um, so yeah, and I think that's helpful because I think otherwise it's quite easy to just be quite um, cynical and say, well, yeah, of course you're going to say you're doing something good, but where's your, yeah, they don't ever see any evidence of that. At least now you can you'll have access to a, a kind of a, a register and you'll be able to see, you know, where is this being delivered? What type of outcome is being delivered and what planning permission is it linked back to as well? So, so the register will be quite an important fact function. It's also important from a monitoring perspective because it provides them data back to Natural England and ultimately to government um, because we will be uh, running a kind of long-term monitoring program around that game. You know, we're assuming various things about it, you know, create the habitats, the species will come, being a big assumption, for example. So there's various things that we're going to be monitoring and evaluating. And the register plays an important role in that as well, in terms of you know, the data it can provide us with, so that we can then say to government, actually, do you know what? Something needs slightly tweaking here because it's not quite working in this regard. Oh, well, you beat me to there. I was going to come on straight onto that monitoring part right. there. So yep. where, where would that would actually sit? So, okay, so it sort of sits on the same registry platform then? 
Um, yeah, so there's two elements to it. So there's um, there's monitoring that goes back to the consenting bodies. So um, so these are at least 30 year agreements. Mm. Um, so what we don't want to do is to only discover at year 30 that actually, you know, Joe Bloggs uh, never did anything, having had the money and nothing ever happened on that part of land, or that, yeah, everything has gone horribly wrong, um, and no kind of interventions have happened. So there will be a requirement for landowners to report back either to the planning authority if they're secured through uh, a kind of section 106 type agreements um, or through to the responsible bodies if they're, they're kind of if the legal mechanism that's securing the land is a conservation covenant um, and one of the things natural england's currently testing is um, kind of standardized templates for that as well so that you've got some consistency of, of data going back you haven't got you know back of fag packet things going through for example um so that's something we're currently testing um and um so the re reporting going back to the planning authorities and the uh, responsible bodies they can take enforcement action if needed um as well um but also um the information should be going to the register as well so that um as yeah you know, just to kind of so that you can access the reports to see actually yes yeah this is how this is what you know, how this particular site is progressing. Okay, so you mentioned both you know section one hundred and six agreements there and and conservation covenants. In, in terms of uh, I suppose like you know consistency of approach then. So yep. you know if if you know say fifty percent of agreements are under a section one hundred and six, fifty percent are under a conservation covenant. Is there any likelihood of? Um, say any enforcement issues and any enforcement cha you know, challenges to either the landowner or the developer i mean imagine the developer sort of goes i paid my money i'm walking away um yes, sort of, sort of thing. yeah yep. um, but in terms of the obligations on the landowner who has to deliver yep. this benefit what are what are the i mean you may not be placed i'm sorry to answer this okay. question but in terms of the difference between a section 106 and a conservation covenant you know you know is one preferable over another i know one's for a local authority to deal with and the other's private but is, is that the main difference yeah so i would i would encourage any landowner obviously to seek legal advice themselves as well in terms of what's going to be the, the best for you i mean one one key difference between the two is that um so mandatory net gain requires you to deliver net gains over a minimum of 30 years um there are landowners out there who are very happy and in fact quite keen to deliver for a much longer period of time as well and and, and some potentially out to in perpetuity um, and conservation covenants provide a legal mechanism to potentially enable or to enable rather people to do that if they're if they're so willing. Um, so that would be kind of one example. So it could be that if you're a landowner who is already quite vested in uh, uh, nature and, and conservation, you could you could be an NGO and you're. It, 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 uh, for example, um, then it might be that conservation covenants are actually you know, the thing you're looking that, that are more appropriate um, for you. Equally, if you're a habitat bank and you're looking to potentially set up um, and then sell um, possibly a quite large area to different landowners, you know, in terms of, you know, landowner, sorry, different developers. So developer X needs 10 units, developer Y needs 30, and you're kind of parceling your site up. It may be that actually, again, having that whole site into a conservation covenant might be an easier mechanism for you than a series of individual 106 agreements. But um, it will come down to decisions by 
you know, landowners as to what they feel is most suitable and most appropriate to them, I think. So, yeah, no, exactly. Seek legal advice. Yeah. Yes, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you've been very generous with your time, uh, Nick. Thank you for that. And, and I think we're just coming towards this sort of close. And just one, well, one further major question I'd like to ask you, and that's regarding, I suppose, the, uh, the long term monitoring. So, these long term management plans. You know, say you say like at least thirty years, and some happy to engage with you know, longer terms. Um, and it, I suppose it, it it brings into that those words. You know, was it better, bigger, and more uh, yeah. uh, 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 across uh, across the whole of England itself? Now, what considerations um, in terms of I suppose in one way the development of these plans. Is there a template for a long-term biodiversity offsetting management plan, for instance? If so, where can I get hold of one? But realistically, is there a sort of set standard um, for that we need to be using, um, such as the, I think it's the BS, was it 8683? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yep. Um, and in terms of, um, yeah, where these documents will be held? I mean, will that be on that register as well? Um, so there is a template being tested. Um, so um, I, I'll have to try and say this slowly because I always trip up over it. So Natural England is also uh, testing a habitat management and monitoring plan template, HMMP, as it gets kind of coined. Um, so that's out with a series of organisations and individuals now um, who are kind of testing that and will be uh, providing us with feedback um, in uh, February time. Um, so if, if others are interested, um, if there's a way for um, them to get in touch with uh, myself, I can pass them on to colleagues in, in Natural England who, who are working on that. Um, so the ambition is to provide this kind of template um, so that you have got this consistency and it, it, it kind of sets out um, how to think in terms of that yeah, much longer time period than perhaps people are, are, are kind of more, more used to doing. Um, and we are encouraging the development of standards. So you mentioned one, so the, the kind of British standard, it's not a requirement of net gain, but it's, yeah, it came out last year. I think it's quite a useful standard. It's a process standard. So it's a, it, the things to be considering in terms of the design and implementation of that game, both in terms of on-site, in terms of the development site itself, but also um, for landowners who are delivering off-site as well, you know, the kind of process that, um, to encourage and, and for them to have in place. And it draws heavily from the best practice principles uh, that were established by bodies like SIEM um, and IEMA and Syria as well. So, um, so it's a good standard. Um, but others are also working on you know, the idea of um, kind of standards for offsets, for example, and things like that. So it, again, it's kind of watch this space, I think, potentially as, as, as some of those might emerge. Future Parks Accelerator is considering a, a, a kind of standard for um, um, uh, kind of public spaces. Um, so parks and green spaces who are providing offsets, um, for example. Um, and it's one that, as Natural England, we're quite keen to see uh, and encourage um, things that will help drive up you know, the quality of, of delivery. You know, none of us are interested in you know, substandard, you know, poor quality outcomes. And I think that applies to developers for the most part as well. They want to know that their money is going to something half decent as well. So, um, so there's an interest in that. Um, and it's an area of we're, we're keen to sort of see other other kind of uh, complementary standards start to come come through as well. Um, and 
You'll have to say what your last question was. I completely forgot to no, write no. it down. No, 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 no. That's, that's always, that links on to it. So in terms of, I've got very two quick questions. Yep. Really. Hope, well, hopefully they're quick questions for you. So first of all, is there, I mean, obviously this this applies to England. And yes. uh, I know you obviously, you know, we're from natural England, don't represent any other part of the, um, any other devolved governments. But uh, is there appetite elsewhere across the UK for such a scheme as as this then? Yeah, it's an interesting question at this moment in time, actually, because we know the metric is being used outside of England. Um, so, you know, there are companies using it in Scotland, companies using it in Wales. And uh, more recent conversations with Nature Scott and with Natural Resources Wales have indicated a an interest in whether the scope to develop some sort of UK framework, um, which I think would be quite helpful because you're going to always get developments that are on or around the border. And as you said, net gain legally applies to England in terms of the coming mandatory approach. So ipso facto, it will be illegal to try and do your delivery in Wales or Scotland. And there may be perfectly sensible reasons locally where actually that's the best place to deliver. So some sort of arrangement, I think, yeah, going forward would be would be helpful. But the environment is a devolved matter. So it, that's very much for you know, the decision makers in, uh, in Scotland and Wales to kind of decide upon. Um, it's also as an approach gathering kind of wider interest as well. So we've had uh, interest from governments as far away as uh, kind of Western uh, states of Canada, Colombia and South America, Norway, France, Italy, etc. So there is a lot of interest out there. But I think yeah, it'd be great if there was a mechanism in the UK to try and kind of tie and, and join things up a little bit as well. And I think, in principle, there's nothing to prevent it from from doing so. Yeah, because I mean, in terms of, uh, I mean, just from, our, I say, our own application, you know, we have an office in Wales, we have an office in, yep. in England, and, um, you know, we, we we work, as you say, work right on the border. So it's just, yep. uh, yes, a consideration there. And uh, as you say, we you know, we, we do implement some sort of biodiversity net gain calculation across in Wales because it helps yes. us understand the yes. tool, but also um, it does provide a figure that it's quite hard to, um, um, you know, uh, uh, dispute really. Yeah, yeah, and and kind of conversations with with colleagues kind of uh, north of the border and, and and also in Wales have been along the lines as well that yeah more as you said more and more organizations are starting to to use it and apply it thinking it's quite useful mm -hmm. so it may be something that sort of happens by default anyway just because yeah you've got you know, growing numbers of, of of developers yeah wanting to use it um and yeah, yes. So it'll be interesting. Watch this space. It's going to be interesting to see what 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 happens. Right. Yeah. And uh, I suppose my final question really is uh, now. By the way, gain in terms of it. I think this is correct. It will also apply to nationally significant infrastructure projects, yep. but it's not currently not currently in marine developments. Um, so is there any? Yeah. What's the development? What's the latest on terms of marine net gain? Yeah, so um, so firstly, on nationally significant infrastructure projects, you're correct. Um, there's a slightly different timetable for the introduction of mandatory net gain for them. So whereas it's uh, expected to be November 2023 for Town and Country Planning Act developments, 
for developments under the 2008 planning act which is your NSIPs um, it's by the end of 2025 uh, although to be fair what we're seeing is a lot of NSIP promoters already coming forward having factored that gain into their thinking as well so I think you know many are seeing this as, a, as something to come through um, in terms of marine um, I think again I think this is going to be quite interesting so there was a consultation just closed uh, in the summer so at the moment uh, one again doesn't apply beyond the subtitle mark uh, sorry the uh, mean low water mark so it, yeah um, and so it includes intertidal habitats but but, but nothing else um, and there's uh, interest from uh, industry um, and from you know, kind of government and other agencies in developing an approach to marine net gain it's very early days um, so there was this consultation over the summer they're still at the point of yeah should it have a metric or should it not have a metric um, should it be focused on biodiversity uh, and if so what or it's, you know does it just habitats or species or should it be more ecosystem service driven it will be interesting to see how it evolves uh, speaking very personally i think um, there will be a need whatever happens for a marine approach and a terrestrial approach to somehow nest together because there are developments offshore wind for example where you know the actual kind of um, the wind farm is in the middle of the sea but all their cabling needs to come on land um, and you need you, know, you need a system that is sensible and can join up as well so i'll be interested to see how that one develops okay yeah and for yeah for terrestrial we're going to be using obviously uk habitat for intertidal is it eunice yes eunice is the hab is the classification system that that has kind of driven the um the intertidal habitats within the within the metric so uh, well, I tell you what, it's been fascinating. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. I mean, I mean, there's there's a, a whole heap of other things that um, I, I, I've got in front of me, but I'm not going to talk about. Uh, but um, you know, local nature recovery strategies and so forth. But um, we'll leave that for another time. But um, is there anything? I mean, in terms of um, very top, some quick top tips for anyone, like particularly ecologists out there who want to get to know more information about biodiversity net game. The, the metric itself and understand the whole process um, um where would you signpost people to um so i definitely try and do the the uh, same training or equivalent training on the metric i think that'd be really helpful if you haven't done that um the information about net gain is a little bit scattered and that's partly just a consequence of challenges and getting information into a single place in government so we tend to use the planning advisory services uh website and it's got a, a, a whole section on biodiversity net gain it's got loads of kind of videos and webinars and you know, links to, to to documents so um so do look at that um and do just have going back to you what you're saying right at the start about you know the opportunity to kind of in, do this early and start thinking about it early so i would encourage all everyone who's listening to if you're going to be or considering doing that gain on a project yeah have those conversations as early as possible as well because you will find it much easier to to, to deliver great thank you and uh, we didn't even talk about local authorities god bless them i mean they're, they're going to be well I, uh, I think you know obviously a lot of this is going to go to local authorities and um you know i think they do need our support as well so it's i think they'll be learning a, a lot you know alongside us really Absolutely, absolutely. Great. But for now, uh, Dr. Nick White, thank you so much for joining me on the Ecology Academy podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. If you enjoy our show and want to help, then please click on the subscribe button and rate us on your favourite podcast player, as that's how you can inspire ecologists in the making, help retain great talent, 
and provide insights of our industry to a much wider audience of why ecology really does matter. Thank you.